0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. And I'll give a a short recap of what we've covered thus far. But, you know, Brother Ben came in a couple of weeks or so ago and did a study with us on the promise made to Abraham. It was a wonderful study, very informative and very much needed. And uh, this lesson that I'm doing kind of complements what he did, and we'll bring that to a fruition a little bit. I hope I'm not treading on ground he intends to cover, but hopefully not, and uh, that we can cover a little bit different ground on things here regarding Abraham and, and this great promise to him. The question, you see, is who are the chosen people of God? Who are they? Because we have people today who have the conception that the chosen people of God live in the Middle East. They are the nation over there of Israel. Now, I'm not anti-Semitic. They are a wonderful ally to America. They have been for years. They are a democracy in the Middle East, and uh, so therefore important and special to America and to a lot of people. So there's no prejudice here, but I'm simply going to make the statement that they are not, by virtue of their relationship to Abraham, the chosen people of God. No one is today, according to their physical lineage, God is not interested in our pedigree. He's not interested in our family tree, our genealogy. He's interested in our relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's what makes us one of God's people today. Now, when we do a survey of things that we covered last time, I laid some foundational things with you. If you'll notice on the chart, we talked about the call of Abraham, how God separated him off from of humanity and made him special promises that he would make of him a great nation. He promised him that he would have a seed that would bless all the nations of the earth. And that seed, of course, is Christ. That's what we want to talk about today. But God built Abraham into a great nation. Remember, Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac Jacob. Now, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. That's where the term Israel comes from. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob means supplanter. Surplanter, that was the meaning of his name, and God changed that to Israel. He's a prince. And Jacob fathered 12 sons. I listed these from Reuben down to Benjamin. There's the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. And every one of them, of course, took wives, some of them multiple wives, and they raised great numbers of children. And through that lineage there from Abraham, he built them through those 12 sons of Jacob into the nation that we call Israel. Remember, they wound up ultimately in bondage in Egypt, and Moses led them out and brought them to Mount Sinai. And we talked about Mount Sinai. There, God made a special covenant with them. And he told them if they would keep his covenant and obey him, they would be a chosen people to him above all others on earth. And he, he, uh, he gave Israel special affection, special laws, laws that he never gave us Gentiles. He gave them, for example, a priesthood out of the tribe of Levi through the family of Aaron, he gave them a high priest and he gave them an entire priesthood based upon relationship to Aaron. Aaron's sons were the priests. Always that family line in Israel was the priestly line. It always went back through Aaron out of the tribe of Levi. And you could not be a priest without being related to Aaron. And Aaron was Moses' older brother. So he gave them laws of all kinds and, and treated them as he treated no other people. They had every advantage. They knew the God of of, uh, creation. They knew the only living God. And us Gentiles were often paganism and idolatry. And God just kind of let us run our own course. We had what we knew by nature, the law in the heart, where, where we knew right and wrong because of man's getting knowledge of that in the garden. But as Gentiles, that's basically all we had for centuries. And then, of course, we went through some of the history of Israel. I showed you here the the lineage from Abraham over to Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. We did the, uh, the ten tribes and the two tribes splitting and talked about that division that occurred in their captivities and how they came out of those captivities. And that leads us now to the scripture I want to notice with you today. And that's Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 there. Galatians 3, 16. Paul said, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. When we read about Abraham's seed, then we're reading really about Jesus. Because to Abraham and his seed, Paul said the promises were made. What promises does does he refer to? The ones Ben talked about chiefly that God would bless all nations. He told Abraham that in thee and thy seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that seed, Paul says, was Christ. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but unto thy seed, which is Christ. Seed as of one. So when he made that promise to Abraham that through his seed all nations would be blessed, he was referring to Abraham's descendant, Jesus. That seed. And that would bless all nations, not just Abraham's posterity, but everyone on earth could be blessed through Abraham's seed. That's, that's quite a promise, but God kept that promise. Now, of course, Jesus is that seed of Abraham. There in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and, and, and verse 1, when you read the book of Matthew, the first thing you read is this, that it's the book of the generation of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the first thing Matthew sets out to do is show the lineage of Christ. Now, sometimes we read these uh, genealogies, so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and, and uh, we think, man, that's dry reading, that's boring reading. That's essential reading. Remember, it's Scripture, and all Scripture is given the inspiration of God, and it's profitable. For doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Even the genealogies then are scripture. They're very valuable to us. And we need to be thankful that the Lord's genealogies in scripture, that we can actually have confidence that he is of the seed of Abraham. And uh, so we can have assurance then in this promise that he's the one being spoken of. Now look at the lineage here in Matthew. I have it in small words. If you're looking at your chart, just look about a a third of the way down there in the center, and you'll see Abraham over there on the left in red, and Jesus in red over on the right bottom. And uh, when you trace Abraham, let's just run these names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judas, Phares, Esram, Aram, Amenadab, Nathan, Solomon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, Reboam, Abiah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Ozias, Jonathan, Achaz, Ezekias, Manasseh, Ammon, Josias, Jeconias, Selathiel, Zerobiel, Abiud, Elochim, Azor, Sadok, Achim, Eliud, Eleazar, Matthan, Jacob, Joseph, whose wife was Mary, of whom was born Jesus Christ. Now that's Matthew's record, and Luke has a little different genealogy. Luke will trace him all the way back to Adam. But again, both of them go through David and Abraham because Jesus had to come not only out of Abraham, but also from David's lineage, and he does. And if we didn't have these genealogies, you see, and somebody asks us, well, why do you believe Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham? Why do you believe he's the Messiah? We can prove his lineage. That's why these genealogies are valuable. If we didn't have this, we wouldn't have the the lineage of Jesus. And we couldn't make that connection for people. So it's essential to our faith to know that he came not only through David, but he is this seed of Abraham. And so Matthew starts his book that way, the generation of Jesus Christ, that is the genealogy of Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So then in due time, then God sent Jesus into the world in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham of a seed that would bless all the nations. And Jesus came, and his ministry, when he came, we must remember, was strictly to Israel, strictly to Jews. Look at Matthew 10, verse 5 through 7. Even when the Lord sent the twelve out to do their preaching, he would not let them go to us Gentiles or to Samaritans. The Bible says these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he would not let them go into any uh, Gentile place or into any city of the Samaritans. He, He said, don't go to them. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So our Lord's ministry was strictly to Israel, although certainly his ministry affects us. But he never ministered to Gentiles when he was here. A lot of people don't know that. Now, occasionally he would run across Samaritans, like in John 4. He dealt with a woman there at Jacob's well in Samaria, and through her, he converted that whole village. There would be occasion where Jesus uh, uh, did some things like for the Syrophoenician woman when he did some healing for her and other people like this, but that was a rarity because he really never ministered much to Gentiles at all or to Samaritans. Jesus came, and when he did, as Abraham's seed, he came in order to sacrifice himself to pay the debt for the sins because all of Israel had, had forsaken God's law and violated it, were guilty of sin, so had us Gentiles. We had violated the law in the heart, and all of us, whole humanity, stood guilty before God when Jesus came. So the Lord came because we need a sacrifice. We need something to pay the debt for our sins because we can't afford to pay it. If we pay for our sins, we've got to go to the lake of fire and pay for those sins for eternity. None of us can afford to do that. God didn't want us doing that, and that's the reason for the plan that he put in place and the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 15 and again in Genesis 22 that Jesus would come and be that sacrifice. You know, we needed someone to bear the sins that we've committed, that they could be taken off of of us and placed on someone else. Remember the sacrificial system under the law. That's what it was all about. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring forth a goat, and he he would lay hands on this goat, symbolically transferring the sins of Israel over on this goat, and then they'd take this goat. It was called the scapegoat, and they led that goat out into the wilderness where no one could find it, and they turned it loose, symbolizing the removing of our sins out of God's presence, symbolizing the carrying away of sins and taking them away forever, where they'll never be remembered. That was that scapegoat. That's what we needed. We need we needed someone to lay our sins over on. Them. There was another goat that they took and killed, and The blood and such things were offered there for the sins of the people. Two goats that day, one a scapegoat and one a sin offering. And so the sin was laid over on each one. And this was was symbolic of what Jesus would do. He would come and bear our sins. We can't afford to bear them. So when the Lord came, he took responsibility for all that we've done wrong. He took the guilt of it. It was laid over on him. The Bible talks about that now in 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 21 to 24 there on the inside. For even hereunto too were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sins, and his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. One of the first things we're told here in this passage is that Jesus was without sin. He knew no sin. He was without guile in his mouth. The Bible says that when he was reviled, he reviled not, aground, uh, not again. Think of the mob there at the foot of his cross. The Lord wouldn't even revile them back. When they were taunting him and laughing at him because he was suffering and dying, Jesus never said to them, I'm going to get you fellows one day. One of these days you've had it. He never reviled them. He never threatened them. When he suffered, the Bible says, he threatened not. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He left the matter to God. And then he shed his blood to make the forgiveness of these revilers possible where his father could forgive them. Otherwise, they would be judged by his father. Jesus didn't judge them that day. He never reviled and condemned them. He never threatened them. He just loved them and shed his life's blood. But in order to shed that blood for sin, we know the Lord had to be innocent. That goat that sins were laid on there in the Old Testament, all those little lambs that were brought and offered and sacrificed to God, or turtle doves, or whatever they were, what had they done wrong? Nothing. They were innocent. What had the lamb done wrong that was offered and killed? Its throat cut and the blood offered to God. The lamb did nothing. What about the animal that was cut up and the parts of it burned and sacrificed to God? What did it do? Nothing. That was to teach man that someone innocent's got to pay for your sin, for your guilt. And Jesus became that lamb, but he had to be sinless. And so the Bible talks about his sinlessness. When we had to have a sacrifice for sins, then it had to be someone who had no sin. If Jesus had ever sinned, he would have had to have died for his own sin. He couldn't have died for ours. And that's why the devil works so hard on Christ. If he can get him to sin one time, he ruins God's plan of salvation. But he never could get Christ to sin. And so Jesus then was able at Calvary to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. So all of these things we've done that day, if we can picture that, was laid over on one person. All of the adultery, the drunkenness, the cursing, the lying, the murders, the theft, anything that you can think of that day is laid over on Jesus as if he had done all that, when actually he would never done anything wrong. And there at Calvary, he poured out his life blood, then to pay the penalty, which is death, for the sin that we've committed. This enabled God, you see, to take Abraham's seed and now use him to bless all nations in the forgiveness of their sins, to make them his people. And so Jesus then shed his blood that day and died, and we know that they buried him. Three days later, he rose from the dead. You know, when I preach funerals, a lot of times I talk about that at the cemetery, how how marvelous it is how God has provided everything that we need. Because, brothers and sisters, it wasn't enough for, for Jesus to shed his blood to give us forgiveness. We're going to die. What then? What good is it to go down into the grave, forgiven of your sins, if you're not going to live again? We don't have any advantage then over a sinner over someone that's never been forgiven. We would go down to our grave forgiven. The sinner would go down to his unforgiven, but neither one would live again. So Jesus rose then the third day and thereby conquered death, making it possible for us to not only be forgiven when we die, but to be raised from the dead one day when he comes because he's got power over death. And that's why we preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We call it the gospel. It's the good news. First Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the good news, isn't it? That's the gospel that we preach. Christ died for our sins, therefore we don't have to die for them. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, therefore through him we can rise again ourselves and one day have everlasting life. He has provided then everything that you and I needed. And not only that, but now he sits at God's right hand as our King and Lord. He is our mediator between us and God. He is our interceder who goes to God and makes intercession for us as our high priest. He is everything that we need. He is the hope of our uh, everlasting life because we expect him to return to this earth again and believe that confidently. And when he comes, he will raise all of our loved ones. He will raise us if we're dead. And he will judge us and declare us righteous because of our faith in him and our life lived for him and then take us to an everlasting home. We are pinning everything in this life that we have on one person, and that's on Abraham's seed, Jesus. And that's what God intended. And that's what the the world needs to understand. That's the message they need to hear. All is not lost. Your sin can be forgiven and you can live again forever. That's our good news. That's our message. That's the gospel. And that's the message we preach. Now, the Lord wanted this preached everywhere. Mark, Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. One of the last things Jesus did when he was here on earth before his ascension was give the Great Commission to the Apostles. And Mark's version says in verse 15 of chapter 16, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Preach my death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, that's the gospel. What is it? Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose the third day, according to the scriptures. Jesus said, Go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved but he that believeth not shall be damned. So then the one that will believe in his death, burial, and resurrection and believe this gospel and obey Christ in baptism, Jesus said, I'll save him. You go preach that to every creature. And I wonder if the apostles knew that that would involve Gentiles. Because while Jesus was here on earth, he he had told them, go not into the way of the Gentiles and any city of the Samaritans enter you not. Now he tells them in the commission before he leaves, You go preach this gospel to every creature. I'm wondering, really, if they understood that at that time. He told them in Matthew's record to go teach all nations, but he'd never allowed them to do that before. And remember, Peter had to have a special vision in Acts 10 to get him to go into a Gentile's house up at Caesarea. And we're made to wonder, did they understand this commission then, that they would preach indeed to every creature on earth? Jew or Gentile makes no difference. Because that was the promise to Abraham. In thee and thy seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And now they're to carry this gospel to every nation. Now, they were to take it first to the Jew. Romans 1 and 16, would you read there with me? Paul said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. The Jew, because they, had, they were of Abraham's lineage, because they had been God's people at one time and treated specially and had his word, when the gospel was preached under the Great Commission, it was preached first to the Jews here in Acts chapter 2. And we know that 3,000 Jews that day gladly received the gospel, and they were baptized, they were called out of the world and out of sin and added to the church that day. And then over in Acts 10, he got to us Gentiles. And finally, the gospel was offered to Gentile as well as Jew. Cornelius and his household were privileged then to obey the Lord in baptism, to be saved, and to be added to the church along with the Jews. Because it was always God's plan to take Jew and Gentile and reconcile them unto God in one body that we call the church. To take all the nations of the earth, and bless them through this seed of Abraham by giving them salvation and making them his people. And that started on Pentecost. That work is still going on. It's work that we are involved in continually and will be as long as we're here. As long as the earth stands, the church will be carrying this message. In Acts 13 is an interesting scripture because Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel now. It's, it's Paul's first missionary journey. And they're in the city of Antioch in Pisidia. Not Antioch in Syria, but Antioch in Pisidia. And in verse 44, the Bible says that the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. The gospel was always offered to Abraham's physical lineage, to the Jew first, because they had been God's special people at one time. And then it was offered to us Gentiles. And we see that here in Antioch. Since the Jew, for the most part, rejected it, they turned their attention to us Gentiles. And the church, for the most part, is made up of Gentiles. But it's made up of all Jews, all of Abraham's lineage, that will believe in Jesus, and it's made up of any Gentiles that will believe in Jesus. That's what makes up the church, the Jew first, then also the Greek or the Gentile. And so we, we have opportunity then when we obey the, the gospel to become part of the church. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3 and 15. Paul said, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So when we obey the gospel, when we're baptized for the remission of sins then, We are called out. We are added to the church. That's what the word church means. That's all it means. God called Abraham and separated him off from the world and built his posterity into his people. Now, God calls through the gospel to all of humanity and he offers to call them out of the world just like he did with Abraham back here and make them part of his people, the church, the called out. That's really all the church is. When we say church of Christ, it's the called out of Christ. That's all we are. Called out of the world, called out of sin. And the church here, if you'll notice in verse uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, we're called the house of God. What is the house of God? What's the house of David? It's his family. It's his children. It's really David's family. You and I are not in David's house. We're not in his family. All of his children are in his house. Same way with Ben and Lana. That's their house. And the children are in that house. We're not part of their house. They're friends and brethren, but we're not part of their house. But God offers us an opportunity to be part of his house. What is that? His family. His children. And this is the chosen people we're talking about. This was his plan all along through Abraham and his seed. The very promise that Ben talked about there made to Abraham was to bring Abraham's seed, Christ, into this world to bless all nations. And that's exactly what Jesus does. By us offering and Christ offering salvation to the world, Jew and Gentile can obey the gospel of Christ and be baptized into him and, and be called out of the world and out of sin and become part of the house of God, which is the family of God. Galatians 3, verse 26-27. Read with me. Paul said, For you are all the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now watch this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you be Christ, Then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to Abraham. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed, spiritually. You don't have to descend from Abraham fleshly. You don't have to be part of his lineage, part of his genealogy, part of his family line. But you have to be connected to his seed, who was part of his family line, and that's Christ. And that spiritual connection to Jesus makes us part of Abraham's seed by faith. We are the children of God. We become children. And he said, if you be Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the true seed of Abraham then belonged to who? Jesus. And so if I'm over in the Middle East or if I'm anywhere else on earth and I trace my lineage to Abraham, that means nothing to God. That doesn't make me part of God's house. That doesn't make me part of Abraham's seed. I might be a physical uh, part of Abraham's lineage. But I'm not the seed of Abraham that God recognizes. Let's understand that. Now, in Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, back under the, actually before the law of Moses was ever given, When God called Abraham off out of all other peoples, he gave him a covenant and he made that covenant in his flesh. It was called circumcision. He required Abraham to be circumcised. He required all of his servants, everyone in his house. All of the males that would be born in his house were circumcised at eight days of age because if not, you were cut out of the covenant, cut out of the promise. You had to have circumcision, a physical circumcision. Uh, or you could not be part of God's people. You and I have to have circumcision today, but it's spiritual in nature. Notice what Paul said about it in Romans 2. For he is not a Jew which which is one outwardly, rather, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, whose praise is not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. In order to be a Jew that's acceptable to God today, you have to be one inwardly, spiritually speaking. That's our connection to, to Christ, Abraham's seed. That's what makes us a Jew. Now, a physical descendant of Abraham is literally a Jew, all right, but they're not God's Jew, if you understand what I mean. A person can be fleshly circumcised, but it's not God's circumcision. He doesn't care about that. You can be uncircumcised or circumcised, but in order to have the circumcision God requires, it's got to be of the heart. And when you and I are baptized into Christ, there's an operation God performs in stripping away the the body of sins from our heart. That's all cut away, so to speak, in an operation when sins are taken away from us and removed through Christ's blood, there's a circumcision takes place. And if you're female, you're circumcised. If you're male, you're circumcised. You cannot be a child of God today without having this circumcision the Bible talks about. You cannot be a child today without being a Jew, the kind of Jew the Bible talks about, a Jew that's one inwardly, not outwardly. Every Christian is a Jew Understand that. Every Christian is a descendant of Abraham, spiritually speaking. Every Christian is circumcised. Every Christian is part of Israel, God's Israel. Look at the next verse there, Romans 9, verse 6 to 8. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now let's let's, let's understand that statement. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. What does he mean there? They are not God's Israel because they are of the physical nation of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, flesh fleshly descendants of Abraham. These are not the children of God. Do you see that? They which are of the flesh, children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So all of these fleshly descendants here from Abraham that have come on down through the stream of time, these are not God's children unless, unless they belong to Jesus, then they are. But it's not their Judaism that made the difference, it's their relationship to Abraham's seed, Christ that makes them children of Abraham, that makes them Israel. God's Israel, folks, is the church. Do you see that? God's Israel is a church. Is there an Israel, a physical Israel? Yes, but it's not God's Israel. He He doesn't care about lineage to Abraham anymore. He cares about a relationship to Jesus. He doesn't care about physical circumcision anymore. He cares about a circumcision of the heart. He doesn't care about a physical Jew anymore in the sense of favoring the Jews over Gentiles. What he wants is one that's a Jew inwardly, our relationship to Christ. This is what the children of God are all about. These are the chosen people of God today, the church. And if you're in the church, you're among those people. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. Now watch this, Peter said to the church here, ye are a chosen generation, notice chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's that calling out. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So if you're in the church today, then you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why, Peter? That you should show forth